Jenny Ashcroft's historical fiction reflects her many years living and working abroad. She does captivating romances that have been compared to the big names of popular fiction, people like Lucinda Riley and Kate Furnival. Stories of family secrets in love doomed by misunderstandings and war, set in Bombay, Singapore, Australia and Egypt. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading Today, Jenny Ashcroft talks about her latest book, Under the Golden Sun. Set against the epic beauty of a cattle station in rural Queensland, disrupted by the tentacles of a far-off European war and the arrival of American troops in Brisbane. Links to Jenny's books and media can be found on thejoysofbingereading.com. Come by and leave us your comments. Make some suggestions for who you'd like to see or hear interviewed next. We love to hear from you. We always try and respond to your messages. But now, here's Jenny. Hello there, Jenny, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now, you're in COVID, uh, well, you're very successfully combating COVID in Britain these days, aren't you? But you're in Brighton. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's it's been a long winter, a very, very long winter here in, in lockdown. My kids have only just gone back to school. They were The schools were shut since December. Um, everything's been shut. So it's been a really long haul with, with actually quite a grey and dark winter as well. Not a lot of sunshine has broken through. So we're all very happy to see spring on its way. That's fantastic. Look, you've made your specialty area historic fiction, but outside of some of the more traditional settings like First and Second World War, but also related to India, British-occupied, Egypt, Singapore, Australia, rather than just the traditional European setting. And you've also included a lot of stories about family conflicts, misunderstandings and secrets, which I think readers always love, misunderstandings and secrets. (laughs) But what drew you to this particular niche in the beginning? it's a hard one. I think probably the the biggest thing is that I have got a lot of experience personally of living overseas. So we, I'm married to an Australian, so I've spent a chunk of time in Sydney, but we also lived for six years in Singapore. So I think, and they were the years that I started writing with, when we were still in Sydney and in Singapore. So I think there was a natural inclination in me to write about the experiences of people who were no, not living in their own you know, where, they, where they've grown up. And also I've read a lot of books set during those periods that I've really loved. And so, you know, when I think when anyone starts writing, they think about what are the books they love to read most. And I feel like that's what a lot of authors do. You write the books that you would love to read. And for me, that was, you know, part of what, I, you know, I you know, drove me to write was my love of those stories that I discovered. So I think those two things together, just enjoying, having enjoyed set stories, setting those places, plus the fact that I was experiencing living overseas myself through me 
drew me to write those settings. Now, the very first one that you wrote was Beneath a Burning Sky, and it was set in Alexandria and Egypt. Two Sisters, A Tale of Love and Betrayal. Just what was the catalyst when you were in Sydney to get you started on writing that particular book, your first book? Yeah, so actually that wasn't, weirdly, that wasn't my first book. My first book was a book that didn't even get a UK deal. Oh. It only got a German deal, yeah. So I, and I think I often forget that, and I often talk about Beneath the Burning Sky as my first book, but I think most authors will say that was never their, you know, their first book wasn't their first book. We've all had these books that we've written that, you know, for whatever reason, you know, didn't didn't get those deals. But when I wrote about Egypt, oh gosh, it's really hard to remember Exactly. I'd read, I'd read a couple of books set in Egypt that I'd loved. One that springs to mind is Iris and Ruby by Rosie Thomas, which I think is a beautiful book. I'd been to Egypt with my husband and really been fascinated by it. And I think I was just drawn to the idea of, of writing a book set there. And then when I started to do the research and coming across some of the things that happened and the you know, the cruelty, cruelties of the British rule there, it, it spun up the idea in my mind of, of this, of, you know, the friction between the British and oppressors and, and, the, and the native population. And that was where the idea came from. I, I, I can't say, well, I can't, I never really know fully where my ideas come from, but I, it was that, 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 that was the origin of, of where it starts to evolve. Just going back to that book that you, you did get published in Germany, what was that one? That was a First World War book as well, actually. And funny enough, it wasn't one set overseas. It was a very British First World War book. It was um, a family in Oxford who just had their lives turned upside down. Two families in Oxford who had their lives turned upside down by the start of the First World War. It was very bucolic, born of my love of books like The Go-Between and Atonement and things, those types of reads. And I love that book, but it didn't get a UK deal, but it was published in Germany as Die Frauen von Rose Square. It was published there. Wonderful. Yeah. Look, we're going to be focusing on your most recent book, and that is Under the Golden Sun. And it's a one that is split between a bombed out London and an outback pastoral station in Australia, both of them in the Second World War, and both of them very much imbued with the sense of war. Because even in Australia, in the outback, we've got a fighter pilot who's returned home rather badly burned. We've got the, the Americans piling in as they enter the war. It's another tale of family secrets. And I know you've said you don't quite know where these things come from, but <laughs> how did that one get sparked? Uh, so actually, we when you when so I was under contract when I wrote this book, and you, you what you tend to do is come up with several synopses that you send to a, your publisher, or your editor, and say, "What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this?" And we we had talked about whether there was potential because of the fact that I'm married to an Australian, whether there was a potential to um, to set one there. And I, it's a country I love. Sorry, that was my kids in the background. There <laughs> um, was a country I you know I love. It was home. It's part home. My um, husband's um, grandfather had we spoke a lot about his experiences when he was in Australia during the Second World War and the arrival of the Americans and how that felt to the Australians who were there at the time so there was all these various things just bubbling away in my head and then I think I read a book I think I must have read a book that often is how it happens where I was doing a bit of research and I read this I read a couple of things one was the guide 
to the American servicemen serving in Australia, which made me laugh a lot, you know, just the be warned about this is the kind of thing they do and these are the way the women are and you know it just really made me laugh and then also um a book which was set in brisbane during the second world war and the way that author brought the city alive with talk of the you know the dance halls and the winter garden all of that it just was so vivid and there was this passage that i read about the american ships first landing when they sing you are my sunshine to all the people on the on the banks and it just I was like I've got to write about this I've got to write this story because it was so I just thought it was so beautiful this idea of these boys such a long long way away from home singing that song to those people on the riverbank and having them sing waltzing Matilda back to them and so that was it just kind of I knew then it was going to be wartime Australia and then i I don't know why I decided that it was going to be Rose answering that newspaper advertisement, but I just thought what would have taken a British woman to Australia at that time? It would have to be something. And then this idea of this this quest to take this little boy home was was what came to my head. Yeah, so Walter is the little boy. His mum has died in London. They've been estranged from the family for reasons which we don't really understand much about at the beginning. But when he's returned to that family in Australia, it's a little bit of an unknown journey. We don't quite know how he's going to be received or even who's going to be there to receive him. And so Rose promises that she will stay with him until he's really settled and happy. She kind of makes that commitment because she's like his main connection with the world once they get on that ship and they're sailing away. So you've got a great heart-wrenching setup there at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I I think maybe, and also that's probably to do with the fact that I, you know, I think we often will write what we know and I'm currently the mum of small children. They were growing up too fast, but they are currently still quite small children. And I think one of the things that struck me most when I had children was their vulnerability and just how much they depend on their parents to to make things right for them, to look after them. And so this idea of this little boy who's been left parentless a long way from where he's from. And I just thought that connection between Rose, who's lost someone herself. And this, I thought it was a very special thing, heart-wrenching for both of them, that they heal each other, actually, as they go on this journey across to the other side of the world. But it was quite, it was hard to write because I didn't honestly didn't know how it was going to end when I was writing it. And I was building up the love between them with this sort of what is going to happen because, you know, she's taking him somewhere to leave him. But yeah, it was definitely a heart-wrenching setup. Yeah. I I love the dialogue that you give Rose and Walter. There's something very I don't know it seems to feels to me very real that these 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 wonderful chats could have gone on. They're very open and innocent. And I suspect that perhaps being the mum of, of, and it is boys, isn't it? Younger boys. Oh, yeah, two boys and one girl, yeah. That, that you probably had a real sense. I just wondered if even some of your own chats with your children got in yeah. there. <laughs> actually, there's a funny story because one of, um, so the book is dedicated to my nephew, actually, Leo. And there's a line when Walter says, and it was my, my nephew, he was, we were getting ready for Christmas, actually. And he was really excited. He was probably, he was about five. 
And he just said to my sister, my nerves are shocked. And it's, it's just like lived in our family as my nerves are shocked. And we always say it. And, but, and then water, I said to Leo, do you mind if I use that in my book? And he's like, you're fine, Auntie Jenny, you can use that. But yeah, absolutely. These little things, we all know that kids say funny things and they perceive the world in a way that we don't even realize they're doing. I think they're taking things in, they're absorbing. The one thing I didn't want to do was try and write from a child's perspective because I feel that as an adult, I would not be, I, I, I write from the perspectives that I understand. And as an adult, I would struggle, I think, to portray that. But I did think it was fair enough to try and write from the perspective of an adult caring for a small child. But even then, in the edits, when, when I went for my round of edits, my editor in America said, you know, he's too smart. You need to, he's, he's acting, sometimes I did slip into making him talk a bit too old and like things like would he have known what a prime minister was at age five and all of those things had to be edited quite carefully to make sure I didn't I think he's a precocious child he's a very smart child but he is still five so you know that that was that was actually quite challenging to get right but I enjoyed it yeah and there is an aspect of it where Aboriginal heritage comes into the story yeah. as well. We won't give away too much of the storyline, but I thought that was quite brave and also challenging to, to, to enter into that territory because it is a little sensitive, isn't it? How did you yeah. tackle that? So I was I was worried about it. I was worried about, not, not worried about the issue, but worried about getting it right because it is so important to get it right. I could have very easily written a story just about a British woman taking a British child, but I thought there was something very true and to the time to be done, given he was going back to Queensland, given he was going back to, to an area where his father would have been from to have that Aboriginal heritage there. But we did get a sensitivity read done to make sure that the terminology that was being used was appropriate, that there was nothing upsetting or in any way wrong that was written in the book. Unfortunately, there wasn't. It was, it was, I was very careful the whole time to be respectful, I hope. And, and that was what was was come came back from the sensitivity reader. But it is something that I think that we all need to be mindful of. But you know, we do. And um, so it was. It was definitely a line that I was very careful about treading and, and I hope I hope I have done it properly. I can only hope that I've done my best there. It's interesting, the sensitivity read. I think quite a few readers probably don't understand or realise that this is something that's becoming more and more common, isn't it? Could you tell us a little bit about how your editors handle that side of things? I think it is becoming very common now and, and it's, it literally is that once the book is almost ready to go to production, you get that final read done. And if anything is flagged, then you change it or you have the discussion with the reader to, to work out what's the best way forward. I mean, even quite, like it's, it's hard to have this conversation because you, you're so conscious the whole time about what, what could, you know, could be taken or misinterpreted. I think basically these books, while certainly I will always write with the best intentions, and a sensitivity read is about that. It's about making sure that the, re that the books that I have written really to bring joy to people do do that rather than anything else. Um, yes. And have you had a sensitivity read on any of your other books? It's, yeah, it's, I think it is something that is more and more happening. Um, yes. Yeah. It's interesting because we do AI translation on this, on, on these 
recordings that we make and my sister helps with the editing of those and we came across this sensitivity read in another author just recently and she had never heard of it she didn't quite know how to you know put that into a transcript because she didn't understand the concept so that's one of the reasons it's done across the board I mean it's for every type Mm. of book you know there's there's you just I think it's to do with the fact when when an author is writing about something they may not instinctively have grown up with or, or lived with and so you know I know plenty of authors who've had it done for teen books that they've written and you know young adult because it's just important to get the pitch correct you yes. know the tone yeah. correct and that's I think that's more than anything what it's about yeah yeah look you've you one before under the golden sun was meet me in Bombay and it's it's got tremendous rap as an, an absolutely irresistible love story it's uh, <laughs> split between wartime Europe and India, but this time it's the First World War. And so mm. the, the war theatre is the French trenches. Luke and Maddie fall in love. They marry before he goes off to war. And then he loses his memory at the front because of a, a very traumatic experience. And there's quite a, a, a big follow-on of, of how they, whether they ever manage to, to find their way back to one another again. Was there anything in the in the way of historical fiction or, or journals that sparked this or how, how did you come upon that story? Yeah, I, I honestly, I, 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 so it has, I have read It's Been Likened to the Notebook. I've never read the notebook, so I don't, it wasn't that. It's, I, I haven't read, no, it was nothing that I read. I, I, the first thing I read when I was researching this book was a lot of letters that were written by the Indian soldiers to their families back in India, and they are they are incredibly tragic and moving those those letters. And so, that was probably the first research that I did specifically for the book. These people who had never left their country, the warmth of India, and were taken to the Western Front in tropical kits to fight a war that had nothing to do with them. And and I really wanted to to make that part of the story because I actually don't haven't seen it much in fiction at all and I have had a lot of people write to me say that we didn't even realize you know that this this is what had happened and as a historical fiction writer that I do think it's it's a good one thing that can be done is it can be trigger awareness and more interest in a period so that people do go out and find out more about it but the actual story really came about because I just I was scribbling down lots and lots of different ideas and I came up with a scene that's quite far into the book, actually. It's when it's Iris's birthday party. And I originally wrote that scene as the prologue to the book. And then, I mean, I think most people would say that the original prologue they write never ends up being the prologue that, that you end up with. But that the story then spun around there about this person, will they or when they return to the, to the person they love? And I was just, one day I just suddenly thought of this letter this man and this and this this very elderly man writing a letter to a woman who he wants to return to. And I wrote the letter and then I thought about cutting these narratives, you know, the narrative with this soldier trying to get home. And it just came from there. It really was an evolution of an idea rather than just a single, this is what I should do. But like all my books, I don't plot them that much before I write them. So I end up Make, I genuinely make it up as I go along and and then you have to go back and rewrite chunks because you've realised the way that you want your story to move. 
Yes, I must admit, I had no idea about the cutting out of the Gurkhas as well. And I was just absolutely shocked when I read that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Imagine the cold of it. I remember when I was at university, because I studied the First World War at university, and I remember reading a nurse's account of being on a convalescent train full of Indian troops and her talking about how cold they were. And, you know, cold is, it's miserable. But to be injured in a horrific war and that far from home and freezing cold because the, you know, the British hadn't even given them the uniforms. I just found that, I found it just so beyond shocking. And it was month, you know, it was Christmas before they got those uniforms. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you are mentioned now in the in the company of top authors, you know, that they say <laughs> things like perfect for fans of Lucinda Riley, Dinah Jeffries, some of the big names. When you started out, what were your expectations for, for what you were going to achieve as an author? I mean, like instant, huge, multinational success yeah. in a movie deal, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't know. It's, it's what is what has really hit me is this is a really tough industry it's a tough industry it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be I think when I I think when you first start out you can be a bit naive or I certainly was about how long it would take words I often get used to be by my publishers is it's a long game and you keep it's a bit I feel like it's a bit like panning for gold you keep writing these books hoping you'll hit the zeitgeist and that it will take off and you'll get some luck come your way because I do think you need a bit of luck but my expectations I don't know I I wanted to get my a really great way of putting it I had and I can't remember I think it may even have been Dinah who said it to me it was somebody you get to the top of one hill and you think that's your hill and then you look around you and you see all the other hills that you've still got to climb so my first hill was get an agent I got an agent then it was get a publishing deal which wasn't as easy as I thought it might be it was really hard then it was get foreign publishing deals. Then it was get a US publishing deal. Then it's like actually sell some of these books. And it just, it goes on and on and on and on. But I think when I first started, I hoped it would become a career. And now I'm currently writing my sixth book and it's a career. It's my, you know, it's something that I do day to day. And that is a dream come true, but it is also really, really hard sometimes to just, this is a, you know, it's a rough time to be publishing. It's, bookshops are closed and um, you know I don't deny how lucky I am so delighted to be doing this job but it is it is hard sometimes to just keep going so I would also like to say if anyone if any authors are listening or aspiring authors who are finding it hard I would say you're not alone but keep going because one surefire way to to not have your dreams come true is to stop writing. Yeah that's right one of the authors that I've spoken to recently and a British woman who now lives in New Zealand and is writing from New Zealand, but she's got an English publishing deal. And um, she had a book that came out, was due to come out early last year. And it was initially kind of fanfared as a summer, the summer blockbuster. It was looking like it was going to trend wonderfully. Uh, and then COVID hit and, she, and all I the know. book shops. She's just been really, really gutted by, she said that one day last year, 600 books were all released at one, on one day when when the, the warehouse in September it yeah was in September yeah. it was it and it continues to be that way so June under the golden sun's coming out in England in June there are a lot of books coming out in June yeah and it yeah. and it's it's even getting it on a shelf is hard 
Yes. And if you don't have it on a shelf, then no one knows it exists unless they happen to get it served up on Amazon. So it is, I I hear it. I think that, I think book sales have been really, really strong for some because people, and I think what's one of the positives of the pandemic is people have rediscovered this love of reading. It's not, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard, you know, there's a lot of people I know who are just like, we've just got to keep going. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Look, turning to your wider career, tell us a bit about your life before you did become a full-time writer. I know you did a lot of traveling. Tell us a little bit about life before being a mum and yeah, but, I mean, what was that? Gosh, <laughs> like I can't remember. I used to work for Microsoft, so for um, a long time, actually, for several well, eleven years. No, not seven years. I thought it was eleven years. I was. I worked in corporate strategy at Microsoft, which was a lot of fun. I loved that job, but it was a lot of travel. When my it wasn't my daughter, I kept doing it, and then when my my second child, my son was born, I, it was just too. I just I, a I wanted to start writing properly, and b it was really hard having two people, me and my husband, both traveling because he traveled. I mean, we had this one one situation, and no word of a lie. He flew back from New York into Singapore Airport. I was there with Molly in the pushchair, and I had my suitcase. I gave, he was jet lagged, you know, just come back from New York to, Singa- to Singapore. I handed him over Molly and got on the flight to, um, to LA and Seattle. And it was just, you know, it was hard. It was really, really, really hard. And I wouldn't see the kids for like a week or 10 days at a time when I was doing, you know, and then I'd come back and I'd just get over my jet lag and it would be off again. But I loved the job. I really, really loved that job. It was great working with great people, seeing Every countries all over the world working on really interesting projects. It's a really fun company to work for. They were very supportive of um, me when I had children, but it wasn't right for me and it wasn't my dream. So it's when Jonah was about 10 months old, I started writing and realized, I do, you know, I realized this was authentic. This was really me. This was really what I wanted to be doing. And very quickly after that, I moved to kind of a consulting basis for Microsoft. And then when I got my German deal, I was able to start writing full time. Mm, Lovely. Look, question that I like to ask everybody, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you see as being the, the, the secret of your success? Yeah. Well, can I say two things? Yes, yes, of course. reading the more you read the better you write I say that to my kids I mean I just I think it's true like if you when you read and read and read and read you will become but the other and this is so important is listening I I have given feedback to people before and I can see they don't want to hear it you know they I I think every piece of feedback you receive is valid the solution somebody offers may not be the right solution but if the feedback is there for, for the book there, there is a problem that needs to be fixed. And so that ability to just swallow your disappointment that the book is not as finished as you thought it was going to be and listen to that and go back and rethink how you've done something, that to me is just so important because no no author is an island. <laughs> we, I mean, it takes another analogy. It takes a village to write a book. I take feedback from my agent, my editor, my editor in America, and, and that's when the book, really becomes a book when when you listen yeah look that's very good advice this is the joys of binge reading and we're coming to the end of our time together so turning to Jenny as reader you've just mentioned how important reading is 
We mm. like to focus more on the light end of the scale, the binge reading, where people <laughs> might discover an author. And it can be really great books, but books that are in, tag, targeted entertainment. And when people discover the author, they like to read their whole backlist. So who are the people in your world that are like that? Well, I mean, I don't need to say one of them because she's in everyone's world, but Jojo Moyes. I discovered her late and then had this incredible backlist to, to read. <laughs> and I, I remember when my third child was born, I was reading The Ship of Brides in hospital. And it was just like, she's just incredible to me. She just transports you. And you know that when you pick up one of her books, you're going to have an amazing time. Actually, another funny one was I remember when I was, this is a, this is a young adult one, actually, but when I was flying back from when I was still at Microsoft and my mum and my sister and pretty much all of my university friends have been going on and on and on about the Twilight books. I was so, I just, they're kids books, you know, what are you talking about? Anyway, and I was on the, <laughs> the plane from Singapore and it was before all of the films had been made, but the first three films had been made and I got completely hooked and I went straight back to Singapore and I, borders were still a thing then and I bought all of the books and I read them in in a weekend I love those books so that was another binge a binge binge read and the other and another author who I think I could just read I could reach I could read a shopping list that she wrote is is Kate Atkinson who I just think is just utterly wonderful so life after life behind the scenes in the museum that God in ruins that I, I could read her all day long a transcription yeah. they're all brilliant well oh, that's wonderful that's wonderful look looking back now over your how long have you have you been writing so I, was, I actually was talking to my husband about this 2012 was when I started so right yeah nine years now that I've been almost 10 yeah it's quite a while so looking back down that tunnel and considering your writing career if you were doing it all over again is there anything you would change no no, I wouldn't. And I do ask myself those questions because you have you have choices that you make at different points, which publishers, some of them are really hard. And I am actually quite a firm believer in that most things happen because that, you know, everything that happens, even if it's not something you want to happen, has its own consequences that are necessary to, you know, that are important and they're meant to happen. I'm not a fatalist, but I do just think that if ever if something's happened, it's because it was meant to happen and and you go on, and I, I wouldn't be where I am now if some of the slips along the way hadn't, hadn't happened. And yes, I would love to have had an instant huge hit debut success, but that's that's not something that's in my that's not something that's in my control. Everything that's in my control is what I focus on, and that is mainly writing the books. And I wouldn't change the books that I've written when I've written them. You know. I do believe that you get better with each book you write. So, of course, I would love to have written a more recent book as my first book, but that's not the way it goes. And so you just, you know, so no, I wouldn't change anything. And I do genuinely count myself very, very lucky to have had the breaks I've had and to be doing what I do. But, yeah, I, you know, I, when we when I've got the, the movie deal, I can definitely look back and say, you know, I'm glad that that all happened when it happened because it was all leading me to this. <laughs> Yes, I actually think that some, for some of those authors who do get the huge thing at the beginning with the debut book, 
it must be awfully hard to turn around and write book two. Yeah, I know. I absolutely. And I think that's the thing. It's never everyone's got their own thing going on and nothing is nothing is what it seems looking in. And also probably, like I said, for those authors, it probably for a lot of them wasn't their first book. You know, they will have yeah. had yeah. those disappointments and yeah. whatever along the yeah. way that we just yeah. don't know about because, yes. Yes. yeah. So looking ahead towards the next 12 months, what is next for Jenny, the writer? Any new projects under development? Yeah, I'm currently halfway through writing a new book, which I've got to finish by July, which I'm really, it's my, my grandmother was Greek and she was in Greece during the occupation and I'm writing a book set in Crete during the occupation. And I'm really, really enjoying this one, actually. I'm quite excited about it, but it's just the hours and the day to to get it down. But it's it's great because it's obviously lockdown. It's been winter and every day I sit at my desk and I leave England, I leave 2021 and I'm back in Crete in the heat in the sunshine and it's really I'm with my grandmother and it's a really lovely place thing to do and go and go and go and escape to so that's that's what's next and yeah it should be finished by July but it won't be coming out actually till next September and that one I guess doesn't have a completed title yet no it doesn't have it's got it's got like five different titles that we're all trying to work out and I don't think any of them are right actually titles are a nightmare under the golden sun I mean I'm not kidding there must have been a 200 titles that got knocked back and oh forth. gosh one. yeah and every time that one person likes something somebody else said no actually I don't think that's right and it went on and on we could not find the title but yeah it's definitely difficult to find the title so this one doesn't have a title at all it's the great it's called the greek book <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely look I imagine you love hearing from your readers where can they find you online so I Instagram or Twitter, and there's always you know, always an ability to message me there. I did have a Facebook page, but I I was so awful at keeping up with it, and I felt permanently guilty because I was never writing anything interesting on that Facebook page. So I just thought this is probably just not worth it. So yeah, so through Twitter and, and Instagram, always please just ping me and send me a message. I'd love to hear from. That's why I write, you know. <laughs> that's wonderful now but you don't have an author a website you you rely on your no. publisher don't you yeah yeah I do it's just it it's bad I should have one it's hours in the day yes. I just I'm struggling so much to stay on top of things at the moment that to actually add anything at this stage I just I can't I feel like I just won't do anything well so I that's why that's why I took the Facebook author page down because I just thought I just need to just focus on what I can manage at the moment. Yes. So that's what yeah. I'm doing. Yeah. Quite funny for somebody who worked for Microsoft not to have a web page. I know. <laughs> you know what? I wasn't technical. And I always joke that the IT guys, when I used to go in with my laptop to get it fixed, they would shudder because they would just be like, oh, she's here again. And we have to explain. <laughs> really and I remember I would talk to the guys who did the coding and say, can we do this? And they'd be like, no, that's just not technically possible. <laughs> technical person at all but yeah I am I am quite business-minded but no no technical know-how whatsoever Uh, that's lovely Jenny look thank you so much for your time today it's been fabulous and I love the sound of the Greek book so we'll look out for it thank you so much (laughs) and thanks for having me along and chatting with me I can see the sunshine in the background and I can almost feel like I'm over there (laughs) (laughs) 
That's wonderful. And just a reminder that all of the things that we've been talking about, your links to books and things like that, they will all be in the show notes that we publish. So people who hear this podcast can find all the links in the show notes for the, at the same time. Okay, lovely to have chatted. Thanks so much. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.